Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. So good to be with you guys this morning. Um, Wow, we have been, as a community, going through the New Testament this year. In fact, the banner this year has been New Testament 2020. And um, we're teaching book by book, sometimes half a book. Today, you're going to get all of First Thessalonians, at least what I'm bringing to you from all of First Thessalonians. And really, we want to encourage you to read along with us. This is like an amazing way to just read through the Bible. And there's something really beautiful. As we have been reading like Paul's letters, and it's been beautiful to see the similarities uh, and to see the differences in the communities. And yet all the love that they have for one another and for God is really, really amazing. So... First Thessalonians, there's also a second Thessalonians, by the way, but that is not my job. I am a first Thessalonians kind of girl, and it is one of the earliest, and some commentators feel it might be the earliest writing of the New Testament. It's also one of the most personal for Paul. In many ways, it's the story of the emergence of a new religious movement, Christianity. That's what we call it. Also, the subject of end times and the return of Jesus is huge in both this letter to the Thessalonians and also the second one. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, every chapter ends with a reference to the second coming of Christ, to his return. And some commentators actually view that as the theme of the letter. But I'm not going to be talking about that at all, except here in just a smidgen at the end. So Thessalonica was a major seaport city in northern Greece. It was situated on um, a road, a Roman road called the Via Ignatia. uh, And it was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. Kind of think Greece, because that's where today we find this town. And it was a city that was very loyal to Rome and still survives. He planted a church there, Paul did, on his second missionary journey about 50 AD. And Luke, one of Paul's missionary brothers, tells us what happened here in Acts chapter 17. So we've actually already talked about this. He was in Thessalonica, Paul, for a short time. Uh, They believe three to five weeks before he was banned from the city because once again he got in trouble for uh, declaring someone other than Caesar as king. And uh, because he was unable then for all kinds of circumstances to return to Thessalonica, he sent Timothy to check on them. Timothy reported back that the church was prospering, even though there was also a lot of intense persecution going on from other factions. So Paul, because he loved that community, wrote this letter from Corinth where he was to encourage, to instruct, and to equip them as fairly new believers in Christ. And doesn't that sound a lot like Paul and the other things that we've been learning about him and how he writes to us, the church. So to prepare, I read every Thessalonians translation that I owned. And I own a lot of Bibles, which is a beautiful thing. I read the NASB, the NIV, the NLT, the NKJV. I read the voice. And then finally, I read the message. And I also watched the Bible the Bible Project video summary, which is great, you guys. 
We actually linked that in our newsletter this Wednesday. Um, I ended up choosing the message, which while it is technically a paraphrase, sometimes conveys meanings that are special. And uh, that's what I'm using today. And um, I want to prepare you right now to hold on. Like I said, gear up, get dinner ready, because I'm going to give you at least five mini messages today. I pulled out verses from every chapter, and there are five chapters that I want to talk about with you. So uh, let's begin with chapter one. This is what I pulled out. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. Paul almost always begins his letters by telling the people that he's writing to that he thanks God for them. This Thessalonian church is special. Of all of his letters, he says more about why he thanks, for the, thanks God for them than he really does to any other church. He even calls them in some translations a model church. This doesn't mean that they were perfect, as we're going to see. And they still fit Paul's profile of a healthy church. They had the right ethos, the right attitudes, the right priorities. And this is really important to remember if you're already in a church, and I'm hoping that most of you who are watching this are a part of Long Beach Christian Fellowship. And if you're not and you're looking for a church, well, come, come be a part of Long Beach Christian Fellowship. You are welcome. Uh, but what is this healthy profile? According to Paul, it is not attendance numbers. It is not annual budget or a beautiful building or cushy seats or the best coffee. It's not media coverage. It's not slick teaching. It's not a bunch of Instagram followers. It's not perfect theology. It's not production. What then? Paul summarizes it this way. A church characterized by faith, hope, love. These three terms properly understood describe a radical. In fact, I'm going to say the radical, revolutionary movement of God's spirit in and through his people, in and through us. And these words were also used over and over by Paul and other early church missionaries. Let's think 1 Corinthians 13, um, faith, hope, love. These three things remain, and the greatest is love. So that's what makes a healthy church. I'll tell you a little personal story about John and I. Um, many, many years ago in a kingdom far, far away. No, that's a different, that's another movie. Uh, basically, a long time ago, uh, 27 years ago. 28 years ago, John and I were attending a really wonderful church in another neighborhood in Long Beach. We'd been there for about nine years. We were leading a house church that had grown and replicated itself five different times. So one house church had become six house churches. I was on their elder board, and um, my last year on the board, I was their head elder. Needless to say, we were extremely involved, and we had a lot of faith. But in a crazy way, we had lost hope, and we were dying. Because the Bible says that without hope, the people perish. Hope in the sense that we wanted that church to change. We wanted them to do it our way. We were actually very determined to help them do that. Until it didn't do that. And then we lost hope. And then our love grew cold. 
for that church at least. And we became nagging, complaining people. We stirred up dissent because we took our complaints into our community. We always brought up what was wrong rather than seeing what had been and still is, by the way, in that church. So very, very right there. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13. If we have not love, we're but clanging symbols. We're no longer a part of the solution. We were a part of the problem. And it makes me sad when I think back on some of that. And yet, how many churches operate that way? Where the community has lost hope. I, I really want to commend LBCF here because um, we have a ton of faith and hope and love that lives here. Are we perfect? Have we been perfect? No way. Are there things that I wish we would change? Yes. And I'm sure you all feel the same. There's another verse that says, taking the trouble with the joy, the joy with the trouble. And currently, there's a lot of trouble right here in LB City. We have crazy COVID numbers. We have racial tensions and unrest. Economically, we are stressed, not to mention just the regular illnesses and stuff of life. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to rebel or resign myself to bad times. And for sure, I'm asking God, why are you, why are you doing this? Why are you putting us through these trials? Even at the same time that I know that these trials are really so small, but does Jesus really know how stuck I am, how stuck you are? I think, I think he does. Um, I know that he does. He wants to help. And I think that many times his way of helping is not what I'm looking for because just like I wanted that church to be the way I wanted it, sometimes I just want Jesus to help my way. But oh, that Paul, so full of faith. He didn't just resist, he anticipated a different reality. The kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. He had a vision for the future. Think hope. A vision that carried him forward and through suffering, imprisonment, storms, snake bites, shipwrecks, being chased out of town by angry Hebrews. He loved the people and he had hope. And that what's really interesting is that notice he didn't ever do any of it alone. Look at the names he always lists and everything that he writes. He traveled with community. He came with friends. He made new community wherever he went. He chose not to be alone in any of it. And somehow, I think that's a secret. I think that's something we can really aspire to, not being alone, choosing community. In chapter two, it says this. We were sure of ourselves in God and went right ahead and said our peace, presenting God's message to you, defiant of the opposition. So the people in Thessalonica, they saw the evidence of Jesus' power to change lives because of the loving and grace-filled lifestyle of Paul and his friends. They were drawn to this new way of loving God, and many of them left their idols behind for that grace and love and the freedom they found in following Christ. It is not an easy thing to allow the Holy Spirit to transform us, yet I'm going to assert but that is what he is always wanting to do in and through each of us. We're meant to grow. We're meant to mature, even get old. 
We're meant to change, and it's the journey of a lifetime. Ask yourself this question. Is your faith, your theology, the same as it was five years ago, as it was three years ago? Consider the answer. Sarah Bessie says, if you're not growing, changing, and evolving, you're not paying attention to what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do. And then there was a guy, he's passed away, his name is M. Scott Peck, and he wrote a lot about what he called the four stages of our spiritual maturing. Brandon mentioned him several times in his teachings. I'm actually going to link to him in our newsletter so you guys will be able to read this for yourselves because he says some really amazing things like, we are not all in the same place in our spirituality. And then he goes on to say, and I'm going to read this part, an understanding of the stages of spiritual development is important for building community, that thing we just talked about. A true community will likely include people in all stages. With this understanding, it is possible for people in different stages to transcend the sense of threat that divides them and become a true community. Nonetheless, after the most intense struggle together, unity, to empty ourselves of our intolerances, we became able to let one another be each in his or her own stage, and we became a community. But we could not have done so without the cognitive, think-head awareness of the different stages of spiritual development and the realization that we're not all in the same place and that that's really all right. In fact, Paul calls that unity. This, to me, is really the beauty of our third-way community. We leadership, elders, along with community members, we've, we've wrestled in prayer, we've studied, and we've searched the scriptures, knowing that there would be opposition, yet confident that choosing to be a third-way community was a call on Long Beach Christian Fellowship from the Holy Spirit. In chapter three, it says, there's trouble ahead and there's joy we experience. So again, as part of my prep, I read this really fascinating book on Thessalonians. It's written by an Argentinian theologian and pastor, Nestor Miquez is his name. He looks at the book from the perspective of oppressed people finding Jesus and freedom. Remember that the Romans were occupying Greece. There were soldiers in the streets. Remember that we're a world living under COVID. There are soldiers in our streets. He argues that the church in Thessalonica originated from urban poor craftspeople and from the socially marginalized. It is undeniable that other social and economic classes were also present, but really much fewer because every time Paul separates them out, like he talks about the woman of means here in Thessalonians, the church, in fact, many of the churches that Paul and the others founded began and belonged to a lower status, second class. And yet they tithed, they gave themselves in love and hope and faith and service. They gave themselves from a test of tribulation and extreme poverty. And still they abounded in grace and joy. And they remained steadfastly hopeful because in the midst of their weakness and suffering, God's spirit infused them with hope and peace 
and joy. God, God will do the same for us. So what are you and I focusing on? The storms and discomforts of life or the promises of God? And this is, again, one of the great benefits of Christian community. Brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, aunts and uncles, husbands and wives, um, who can teach one another and remind one another of our focus, which is always, always, it is always to turn our eyes and our hearts towards Jesus again and again and again. And then ultimately the meaning that this book carries, this is what I would say is really the theme, um, is at the root of how we, you and I, are being asked by God through his word to see the whole world. We've inherited through scripture a tradition, one of making new meaning out of contemporary experience. Paul does use scripture, but only parts of the Old Testament, because that's all he has. There, the Gospels had not even been put, put down in writing at that point. And while he uses parts of scripture, mainly Isaiah and a lot of the Old Testament prophets, he breaks with his Jewish religious tradition because he's found a new meaning. He's found Jesus the Christ. The author of that book, Mikhez, he went on to say that the distinctive feature of Jesus, the Judeo-Christian God, God, is that he is revealed as powerless. Or to say it even better, as a God who opts, chooses to be powerless. Because powerlessness is the only way to guarantee human freedom, my freedom, your freedom. So vulnerable Christian communities planted by Paul become bearers of the message of a vulnerable Christ crucified. And then they're going to be the ones who announce the triumph of love before the invulnerable Roman Empire, who is the crucifier. So the core of Christianity will be that the powerful become weak and the weak show their strength. And again, that's pretty much a, uh, a quote from 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says, they're in my weakness. He is strong. So as we attempt to receive this message today, as we hear it, read the words, how do we hear? And I want to talk a little bit just about our frame, which really, really connects with uh, M. Scott Peck's di different places in our spirituality, our frame. We look at everything through our frame, our worldview. And that comes from our family of origin, the churches we used to attend or not attend, our friends who we hang with, the books that we've read, the pain and the joy that we have experienced. So when we look at something, we're always looking for something. We're always looking for what could actually confirm our, our frame, our bias. And I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying, put that down. Put that down and listen to what the Spirit might be saying to you that might feel very disconcerting and kind of strange, and yet to trust that the Holy Spirit is speaking. In chapter four, Paul does what I love about him so much. He makes a list. This is one of his shorter lists. Um, and he begins like this. Please God. Please him. Not in a dogged religious plod, but in a living, spirited dance. 
so we get in the midst of suffering to be these joyful Christians who dance. Okay, I love this so much. I mean, um, I'm not quite in the wheelchair place, but maybe one of these days I will be. I hope I live that long. I want to dance in my wheelchair because have you seen some of that? It's amazing. We're not called to like plod through the life. Oh man, I got to read my Bible. Oh, I better pray. It's not about checking off the list. It is about a living spirited dance. And then it says, God wants you to live a pure life. And that's a life that isn't mixed with anything else. It only has one substance in it. And that substance is Jesus. He asks that question, who do you say that I am? And then as Ryan taught last week from Colossians 1.17, in Christ, all things hold together. That is what it means to live a pure life, to allow Christ to have headship, kingship in your life. Then he says, keep yourselves from sexual promiscuity. Clearly for Paul, sexual ethics is one of the key points in which the emerging Christian faith is put at risk. It's a key point for our faith today. This was difficult in Thessalonica, and it is difficult today. Thessalonica was filled. Cults of all types, Hellenistic cults, Roman cults, Egyptian cults, many temples to unknown gods, a lot of evidence of drinking, debauchery, temple prostitutes, orgies, sexual imagery has even been found as they have excavated parts of the city as well as in a lot of the ancient writings. And the word used here for sexual immorality is the word porneia. Think pornography. It uh, It's found 26 times in 25 Bible verses. And in earlier Bible translations, it wouldn't be sexual immorality. You would read fornication. And in context here, it speaks against the culture of Roman rule with its cults, pederasty, the sexual use of slaves, etc., etc. And yet, how easily we can succumb to um, being sexual uh, in non-committed relationships. And again, I, I want to talk just a little bit about myself. This is probably PG-13. So if you have kids under 12, maybe they should not be listening here. I, um, yeah, trigger alert maybe. Many of you know, because I've talked about it multiple times, that I was sexually abused by my stepfather. And out of that came just this really crazy disconnection inside of me about what is love. And even though I knew what was going on was wrong, still there was something about it that felt like love to me because he was the only person in my family of origin that ever expressed anything that was loving. And uh, as I grew into older teenage years, and then especially after, after junior college, um, I really found myself in a season of promiscuity where I was thinking that sex meant love and I was having sexual relationships. I was being promiscuous um, with more people than, you know, I would care to admit, except God has asked me to admit it. And it was a time when great shame um, really had its way in my life. And I really didn't know any way out for a big, long season until I just made a decision to stop 
and still I was unclear about what it was that I was doing. So God asked me to, uh, at a certain point, to ask for forgiveness, to own up to my sexual sin, so that actually I could receive real love, beginning with the love that he had for me. Real love, real hope that came from my faith. There's a song that we sing, and it goes like this. My sin is great. Your love is greater. What can separate us now? What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. My sin was great, but his love for me was greater. His love for you is greater. And uh, yet he knew that sexual promiscuity messes us up and that sex is best in the midst of um, committed marriage relationships and uh, at the same time it also says don't run roughshod over the concerns of your brothers and sisters and so we don't judge we honor one another we respect our differences even when we don't like them. We listen to one another's stories and we learn from one another. And then we, verse 11 says, stay calm, mind your own business, do your own job. Again, no judging. But then we take on the task, the gift of working with the weak and the marginalized, the sick and the poor, serving them with faith and hope and love because that's what makes us human. The church is consistent with Paul's option when it links itself with the struggles of oppressed people, sectors, and classes, and when it acknowledges itself as being with those who have no part. That is a quote from my friend Nestor Miquez and his book, The Practice of Hope. And that is who I once was. The church in every season of history has been and is being asked by the Holy Spirit to detach from power in order to equate with those who live in no power, with those who are the remainder that every new generation generates. We are asked to do unto the least of these as doing it unto Jesus, because that is where Jesus lives. That is where we find him. We don't bring him to the poor and the marginalized, the sinners. He's already there. That is how the kingdom comes to earth. That is how we walk towards the reign of God. And if LBCF is ever to truly learn to live in love like Jesus, we must always be open to the surprises of history to the things that are unthinkable and that burst into reality from what has been excluded to see what is not that undoes what is. And then lastly, in chapter five, it says to speak encouraging words to one another. And here I'm remembering Steve Thomas's encouraging words to us to encourage others through text. Encouragement is a gift that we get to give to one another. It builds everyone up. It's not only for the people that are good or are doing it right based on our view of life. It's for everyone. We are called to be encouragers. 
Yeah. We get to serve one another in love and suffering and faith and hope through encouragement. Got a couple of questions. Paul poured out his life into other people, his new and ever-renewing life, a life of love. He knew he was the beloved of Christ, a life with Christ. Where are you pouring your life? It's hard to give thanks in all things, like, like Kathleen told us. But in this book, Paul exhorts us to do just that. Think about your past few days. Where, where have you not given thanks? Do so now because it's not too late. And then how are you responding to the circumstances, the difficulties that life has all of us in right now with joy and love? What do people, family, friends, and others see when they watch you? Are you defrauding yourself or others sexually in any way at all? How's your prayer life? What could make it better? And by the way, I said I wasn't going to talk about it anymore, but Jesus is coming back. The Holy Spirit is his deposit on that promise. And while there are many theories about the hows and the whys and the whens that I am not going to get into, he's coming to see what we, his community, have done in his name. How have we had faith, hope, and love? And we have an opportunity right now to think about all that's been said and to consider it as we take communion together. Doing this in remembrance of the Jesus we love because he first loved us. And love never fails. Amen. So I have communion. I have a glass, a very big glass of wine that my husband poured me and a very big piece of bread. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to get your communion elements and get them ready. I also lost one of my earbuds, but in order to get it, I would have to crawl under my desk, so I'm not going to. Um, Chloe, can you throw up the slide for communion? And our slide is from Luke chapter 22. Then he took the loaf of bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it, broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's partake together. Thank you, Jesus, that um, your love is great, Lord. Thank you that you love each of us, Lord, that there is no condemnation in Christ. And over and over again, you call us, um, yeah, you call us to be close to you. Amen. And so, guys, we're going to continue uh, with singing with Danny. <laughs> 